0: Hey, I want you, you're going to have to use your imagination a little bit today. I want you to imagine being at the DMV, right? The DMV, which, hey, don't gripe, it's not bad in Knoxville. I've been in some bad DMVs. We've got it good here. Um, Or imagine being downtown, Market Square on Friday night. Imagine being at the oil change place, the mall, the airport. These are all prime people-watching places. Any people-watchers in here? Yeah, I love it. You didn't have to raise your hand. Now we know, though. (laughs) I want you to imagine that person that walks by that you all of a sudden are very thankful you are not that person. And don't act like you don't do that, because I know you do. a A little prayer goes out. God, thank you. I am not, not like that person. Are you there yet? Can you imagine it? What is that person? Are they poor? I mean, I know we're all poor, but are are they like really poor? Are they uneducated? Are they socially awkward? It doesn't take long to see those who are socially awkward. Do they have a criminal element to them a little bit, maybe? Maybe they're out of shape? What is it about this person in your mind that you look at and you're very thankful that you are above and beyond that person? Listen, I can get there really fast, too. It doesn't take me very long to start asking myself, why don't they just get a job? I mean, why, why don't they just go to the gym? Why don't they go back to school? Why don't they get their stuff together kind of like me? Like I've been able to do, right? It's easy for me to find myself in this club. How long does it take for you to get there, though? Where we kind of look from afar, like we're at the zoo a little bit, safe distance away as we watch the people walking by. And I don't think anyone's really rude enough to walk up to somebody and say, hey, listen, I've noticed, I've I've been watching you. Are you happy with the way you live? Are you happy being there? Because if not, there's a couple good books I'd love to refer to you. I might even introduce you to a friend that can help you out with your situation. No one does that. No one lives outwardly in such a way that someone knows that you disapprove of them or look down upon them or sneer at them, but we very easily, inwardly, kind of sit back and thank God that we are better than them. That we look better, that we've got it put together. We kind of revel and soak in our own excellence and so we kind of think man God was good to me but I helped him out a little bit because look at me I mean look at that person and look at me God's good and he gives grace but he didn't have to use as much elbow grease on me as he would have to use on that person you know when I sit up here and I I preach it out loud it sounds horrible doesn't it It's very subtle in our minds. I think the very first time I ever heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, I loved it. I loved that motto, it made sense to me. That's a motto I could live by, that's a tattoo I could get and be satisfied with because what it means is is I can pull myself out of my own mud, I can dig myself out of my own mire with these, my own two hands. My own hands, I could use my own uh, effort and pull up on my own bootstraps and I can produce my own magnificence. And I like that because it makes me glorious and it elevates my actions. What it also does is it allows me to stand back and let others just come apart in their own deficiencies because they can't bother to use their own two hands to get their life under control. They, I just, it allows me to say, hey, God helps those who help themselves. Listen, you could just sit there and swim around in your own laziness, your own apathy, your, your own fatigue, you can just deal with it. But I don't have to do anything because you're not doing anything. I don't think I'm alone in here. I think others might struggle with that, at least to some degree. And as we dig into the text today, I think you might see yourself a little bit more clearly. But in our series of stuff that Jesus has never said, I help those who help themselves is definitely on that list. Jesus never said it. Never shows up anywhere in his text, doesn't show up anywhere in the New Testament, doesn't show up in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves is not Scripture, even though most of the world, especially our country, believes it is. 82% of America believes that God helps those who help themselves is actually out of the Bible. Scripture. breathed by God. 70% of those who say they go to church, evangelicals, 70% say that they believe that it is in the Bible. I wonder how many of us walked in here today thinking that surely that's got to be in there somewhere, right? It actually started well over several thousand years ago, I guess, in Aesop's fables. Aesop was a slave um, that lived in the ancient Mediterranean, and he wrote a bunch of fables, and one of them was called The Wagoner. And this is the first time that it actually showed up in what we would call mainstream back in the time. And I'm not a big Aesop guy, so I had to look up this this little fable, and it's only like a couple sentences, so I'm going to read it, okay? And it goes out like this. A wagoner is someone who drives a cart, by the way, like a cart driver or a wagon driver. A wagoner was once driving a heavy load along a very muddy way. At last he came to a part of the road where the wheels sank halfway into the mire. And the more the horses pulled, the deeper sank the wheels. So the wagoner threw down his whip and knelt down and prayed to Hercules the strong. Oh, Hercules, Help me in this, my hour of distress. Every every time I read this, and even when I was putting it together, every time I see the word Hercules, I think of Kevin Sorbo. Is that true for anyone else in here? The dude from the 90s on the show? So he, he throws a fit, Kevin Sorbo shows up, and he says to him this, man, don't sprawl there, get up and put your shoulder to the wheel. The axiom of this fable, the moral of this entire fable Aesop says is, the gods help them that help themselves. That's where it showed up. Over 2,000 years later, Benjamin Franklin grabbed that phrase and really punched it into the mainstream because he put it in the Farmer's Almanac in 1736 in the version that we are used to saying it, which is God helps those who helps themselves. And now everybody says it. We say it, our neighbors say it, our grandpa says it, rappers say it. Even our president has said it publicly. A few years ago, he gave a speech where he was very frustrated. Our president was trying to push through some legislation that had a lot to do with jobs, manufacturing jobs. But he was frustrated because the legislature was caught up making In God We Trust the national motto. So he says in his speech, that's not putting people back to work. I trust in God, but God wants to see us help ourselves by putting people back to work. So later on in the, in the press conference, a journalist asked the press secretary, don't you think it's a little odd that we would bring God into the jobs debate? To where the press secretary replied, well, I believe the phrase from the Bible is, the Lord helps those who help themselves. Isn't it ironic that a polytheistic fable that appeals to Greek mythology has now found it in our times to be scripture to most people who have ever heard it? It's incredible what happens just over a little bit of time. And the thing is, is there's a lot of damage that comes from this theology. We'll call it bootstrap theology. There's a lot of damage. The damage report, it sounds a little bit like this. We assume as people in this weird theology that God himself handles people like we do. We've we've made God in our own image. Where God doesn't pitch in unless the people pitch in. And that's how he handles us. That's the second thing we assume is that we actually helped God. That God came down to give us grace and God came down to serve and God came down to help us, but but he was watching us carefully. And when he came down to rescue and redeem and break us out, we helped in the jailbreak. We helped. We were a big part of it. A third part tenant in this theology is that because of these things, we are only called to extend grace to those who are pitching in. Those who are doing the work. We watch, we wait, and we only move if they move. It's a bad theology. I want to take you back to the DMV or the airport, wherever, and I want you to imagine being there, think about it, and we're going to go through a parable in Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 9, there's a parable, and listen, the parables, it's one of my favorite genres of biblical literature. Next year, in January, we're teaching a class up here before the service, that uh, teaches people how to read the Bible. And when it gets to parables, I especially love them. It's my favorite. The thing about parables, though, we have to be careful. We've heard them so many times, it's almost like slipping on and taking off a well-worn shoe. It's a song we've heard a million times. It's a movie we've seen 40, 50 times. And what used to be a hook and what used to be a punch and what used to shock us shocks us no longer, because we've heard it since the time we were this big, right? And that's the whole force behind a parable the reason the parables were so effective when Christ taught them is because they always jigged when they should have jagged. Right when the original audience thought everything was going to turn right, it turned left. And in that shocking moment, that was the teachable moment. But we've heard it so many times, there's no more shock. There's no more surprise. So we've got to be careful as we go into this. That's part of my job, by the way, as a teacher and as a preacher, is to help you see it correctly. And I'm going to do the best I can today. Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Okay, stop right there, real quick. There's a warning. It's kind of commonplace that whenever we see the word Pharisee in a parable, we just stick a dunce cap on him, right? He's the bad guy. It's a Pharisee. He's a bad guy. He's got the black hat on. He's hypocritical, he's self-righteous, he's always pressing the people down, he's always putting burdens on people's shoulders. He's the black cat. That's not how the original audience heard it. They didn't have black cats back then like they do now. We've had a lot of parables to enculture us to see this. This was not the way it was, right? The black cat belonged on the tax collector in this. As soon as the words tax collector came out of the teacher's mouth, people all of a sudden saw who the villain really was. We don't really have people in society today that run a, a high equivalency with what a tax collector was back then in Jewish culture. You see, when a Roman Empire took over a place, they didn't collect the taxes. They got someone who lived among the people who was the people, who, who was Jewish, to go and collect the taxes themselves. So they were the lowest common denominator. They stole from their own people. They preyed upon their own people. They couldn't hold office. They couldn't even testify in court. We, we don't have anyone like that today. I think the closest thing we have is maybe like a, a, a cartel leader, or a drug kingpin, or someone who traffics humans back and forth uh, across borders, someone who turns on their own kind. It's probably the closest thing we have. So if I were to have said that to you today, instantly the black hat goes on them. The Pharisee, however, not so much. I mean, sure, they they might have put burdens on people's shoulders, but from the outside looking in, it looked like they had everything together. Their head was on a swivel. They said the right things. The temple was their jam. They were always there, looking right, speaking right, doing everything right. And they might have liked to make money, but they would never turn on their own people. To us, we have it swapped a little bit. The original audience would have had the hats on different people than we do. Jesus is about to turn this upside down, though. He says in verse 11, The Pharisees standing or the Pharisee standing by himself prayed this way. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, that's a little bit important there in verse 12. He's not just saying I'm better than this guy. He's saying I'm better than all of my kind, too, because they weren't required to fast twice a week. Scholars disagree on this a little bit. The range, however, is Pharisees were required to fast either one day all the way up to maybe nine or ten, depending on which scholar you listen to. He's saying, I am ten times the Pharisee. I'm not just Pharisee. I'm like Pharisee with turbo. I don't just tithe uh, you know, off my increase. I give ten percent off of everything. I get a gift card in the mail. I give ten percent off of that. I grow it in my garden. I give ten percent of that away. Anything I have and everything, I give ten percent away. What is he doing right here? What is he doing? What what does he think he's getting away with? He was announcing to God how superior he is. He was glossing himself out loud so that people could hear it. It's amazing. And who is he choosing to use as his comparison? The human trafficker. (laughs) He's pointing to this guy that you never even see in a temple. That's who he's using. This is what Charles Spurgeon says about this little moment right here. I'd love to kind of condense it and put it in my own words, but he nails it much better than I could. He says this, This guy, this Pharisee, he felt that God ought to be thanked for making such a man that if nobody else would do the thanking, he would do it himself, for that was a duty that should be done at once. (laughs) So remarkable, a specimen of human excellence ought not to be left on the face of the earth ungratefully forgotten by man. So this guy himself would bless God. That there was, at any rate, at least one person in the world who was all he ought to be, if not even a little bit more. That's the situation we have. So when we read something like this, and of course we're picking that up from the text, we think, what a jerk. (laughs) This guy had no friends. Even the other Pharisees didn't like this guy. He's all alone. Someone should spit in his food. Someone should flat his tires. This guy's a jerk. And he is. And the thing is, he still lives today, doesn't he? This guy is still walking around. I saw him the other day. I saw him this morning in the mirror. I think you did too. I think we are this guy. One of the reasons I love parables, if you read a parable, it's always troubling where we find ourselves. We think we find ourselves as the tax collector, don't we? Wrong. That's not the whole hook in the parable. The parable is, we are the Pharisee. We are the one that judges ourselves by other people. We are the one that gloss ourselves. We are the one that is self-righteous, right? If you could read a parable and come out of it unscathed, you're probably handling it incorrectly. It's a good rule in parables, right? This reveals how I see myself. This reveals how I see God. This parable reveals how I see the community, how I see the city, how I see you verse 13 but the tax collector standing far off now when it says far off here it doesn't mean that they are distant from each other it means he is distal from the the inner part the holy of holies which is where the pharisee would have been the pharisee would have been in close in tight with all the other pharisees out loud so everyone could have heard him and seen him in living color this guy back in a corner away right standing far off that's how the, the the understructure of this language is to lead us here But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So his eyes aren't on anyone else in the place. Not like the other guy. His eyes are pointed straight down. And he's not comparing himself to other people. He's he's literally comparing himself to God and sees how... He falls short, understanding that God is the only place where mercy comes. God is the only... He can't manufacture it. He can't move his own wagon wheel. He sees God, he sees how far he falls short and understands and says something very beautiful here. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now listen, this is a phrase, have mercy on me or be merciful to me, is a phrase that we hear all the time, right? But by the time this was spoken to the original audience they would have only seen it maybe one or two, depending on how you read it, two other times in the known Bible, what they would treat as Scripture back then, maybe once or twice. That's it. Not as common as it is today. In fact, the one that would have jumped off the page is when David, King David, said it in Psalm 51. And I think we have that. Do we have that, Christian? This is how it starts. Have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And when when is he saying this? I mean, it gives you the answer right on top of it. He'd committed murder. he had committed adultery. He had turned his back on his own people. And a prophet of God came and showed him, you are the man. What you did in secret is now apparent to all of us. You are the man. You are the one that is nosediving the plane, which is on fire. It's on you. And here David is in the worst of his days, at the lowest of his points. And what does he cry out? But, oh my God, have mercy on me. And what I love about this tax collector is he's ripping David's prayer off because I think he feels him and gets him. I don't know what this tax collector did. The parable doesn't tell us. I get the feeling he's done more than just collect taxes. (laughs) I think he's done more than what his job has called him to do. And I think he understands David. The first thing I get from this parable is the distance between the two prayers. Do you see that? The distance between the two prayers. You could almost call this, and I've heard other pastors call this passage really and truly a tale of two prayers. I'd have to disagree because I don't even think the first guy's praying. I think he's just announcing his awesomeness for everyone to see how he's got it together. But this guy, this guy, this tax collector, he came as a broken man with jagged edges, with no hope, and he depended on and yet needed God to breathe his life. He just knew he couldn't manufacture all this himself. The Pharisee thought he could, thought he did. This guy, he says, I'm sitting next to my wagon wheel, Lord, and I can't move it. I can't move it. I'm in the muck, I'm in the mire, and every time I try, it just sinks more and more and more. I can't get rid of my own shame. I can't get rid of my own guilt. I've done everything I can, and now I can't even lift my eyes. Now that's a different prayer. It says this in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Saved, basically. Saved. Where God forensically... And judiciously sees this man as clean and no longer dirty. Innocent and no longer guilty. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's a common biblical theme we see over and over again. This is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is disagreeing with Ben Franklin. He's disagreeing with Aesop. He's disagreeing with many people in our culture today. God does not help those who help them. God, in fact, helps those who cannot help themselves. He helps those who have no ability to do it. What God would say instead is, I take those who know that they can't help themselves, and those are the ones I help, and those who think that they don't need any help, those are the ones that I'm not going to help. It's a different theology altogether. So the question we have to ask ourselves today as a church is, how do you measure yourself? How do you measure yourself? Do you measure yourself by looking at God or looking at man? It's really not a tale of two prayers. It's a tale of two sets of eyes. One is looking down and looking to God out of humility, and the other is looking with pride onto his fellow man, his neighbor. How do you measure yourself? By man or by the God-man? What does that look like? You see, if you measure yourself by those around you, your neighbor, you measure yourself by those who misbehave, then it gives you right to look down on them. Wonder why they can't catch up with you and quit being a problem for society. And because of your awesomeness and the fact that you put it together, God actually owes you a little bit of a debt because God helps those who help themselves. But if you measure yourself by the God, man, you see how far short you come. Like this man, you fall with humility and it's not God that owes you a debt. You, in fact, owe God a very deep debt because he behaved where we misbehaved. Who is moving your wagon wheel? Who is indebted to whom? Who's awesome in your story? Who's behaving well in your story? It's a sneaky theology when this gets in. It's a sneaky one. There is a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. And it's in us genetically because of the fall. We got it from our first father, Adam, this pride and this Little Pharisee loves to come out and maximize our efforts, yet minimize God's efforts. That way, we expect everyone else's efforts to catch up with our own. Right? So, we all have it. I have it in me, for sure. And whenever we have forgotten what God has done for us in the beautiful story of His gospel, we call that gospel amnesia, where we have forgotten. Because the beautiful gospel in this passage is we couldn't move our own wagon wheel. We're, we're like this guy, stuck, and every time we try something, it just gets further down in the mud. Yet he shows up. He shows up not to yell at us, not to admonish us, not to tell us to work harder, but he just moves it for us. It's grace. It's grace. Even though we spend our entire lives exerting great efforts to do it ourselves, God shows us Grace. And we define and redefine and redefine it here all the time. Grace is God's favor to you, totally despite you. His favor to you, totally despite you, and your best attempts to get it yourself, and your strongest attempts to push Him away. Despite your best works and your worst works, God's grace comes. That's a better theology. And He doesn't just fix our issues from some ivory tower, but He incarnated and got in the mud and the mire with us. He doesn't just pull the wagon out. He's in the mud, up to his neck, in our creation, doing it. And Jesus did not find us helping. He did not find us aiding and abetting. He he found us rotting, dead. This is super important. This part of this theology is super important. We were spiritually dead when God found us. Not able. Not a little bit clean, not cleaner than our neighbor, but dead. Listen, there is this comparison, this uh, illustration I've heard taught to help us see salvation a little bit better. It's a bad illustration, and it goes a little bit something like this. And I've read it too, so you might have read it or heard it or both. You're sick in a bed. And all you need is this remedy, like a vial of medicine or whatever. And this physician comes in, the great wise physician, and he puts this vial on the bedside table. And all you need to do is reach over and take it and it will heal you. Now, he's not going to do it for you, this theology says. That's up to you. He's brought the remedy to you, but it's up to you to reach out and grab. What is this? God helps those who help themselves. It's just a Christianized version of it. It's not reality. Now, Pharisees love this preach, but it's not true. It's not true. He found us dead, not just sick. In fact, as A.W. Pink would say it, it's not that he just found us dead, it's that our hearts declare war on the great physician we don't even love the one bringing the remedy until he changes our hearts. We don't like this very much. We were dead, and we could not help God in our own rescue. This is what it says in Ephesians 2. Maybe this will help some of you understand this passage a little bit better. Ephesians is kind of chunky. It's great, though, great, great book. If you're going to memorize books of the Bible, this is one that when people do memorize books of the Bible, this is usually one that they always go for first because it's just rich with stuff. But here it is in verse 1 of Ephesians 2. And you were, what does it say? And you were Dead. dead. Dead, not sick. Not kind of just in need of help. Not kind of got it figured out, but just need a little bit of help. Dead, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which which you once walked, following the course of this world. Of course we all did. He's talking to people that used to be in the world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Stuck down in the mud without an answer. Dead. 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 And that's what makes this next part so beautiful. But God. <laughs> what? I mean, two words. Listen, that it's the gospel. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Let me unpack that a little bit. If I were to call you up this week and say, hey, I'm going to go to the cemetery, I'd love to take you with me. I mean, that would never happen, that's kind of weird. And you, but let's just say it does. And you said yes, <laughs> and I came and picked you up. But on the way to the cemetery, I said, we need to go to CVS first. Go to CVS or Walgreens, whichever one you are, and then I, we buy a bunch of medicine. Just all different kinds, prescription, non-prescription. We just fill up bags. We go to the cemetery, and we start to kind of throw it all over the graves. And I get a bullhorn out, and I start yelling at the tombs to come up and take the medicine. This can make you alive again. This can fix your situation. It would weird you out. You would call for backup, wouldn't you? (laughs) You say, Luke, I knew you were charismatic, but come on, man, they're dead. Why would that be weird? because the dead can't fix themselves why can't they well because they're dead that's the idea Uh, equally odd as if jesus instead of being on the outside of lazarus's tomb walks right into it and walks up to a dead body and says listen bud you're gonna have to pitch in a little bit wiggle a foot blink an eye or something but i'm not gonna do it all for you why would that be odd because god did do it all for him that's the whole idea It's why it's a miracle. I mean, it, it, it shows us the same exact lesson, which God is the one that is at work, not us. Not just for the dead uh, physically, but for the dead spiritually. We can't reinvent ourselves. We can't bring ourselves to life. We can't do it. Uh, just as a sidetrack, by the way, if you're an evangelist, or maybe you're not, but you want to be, or you struggle with evangelism, it's total sidetrack, Okay. Evangelism, we believe, is a part of being on mission to the city. You cannot be a missionary or have a missional stance towards Knoxville if you are not an evangelist. It's carrying around the story of hope in our lungs as we herald and take it to a people in a way that they can understand it, right? Where they see God's light and they see the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. As we do this, we come across dead people. The people listening to you preach the word are spiritually Dead. Dead. So even if you get big style points in how you do it, you're not doing the work, understand? God is the one shifting all the blocks around and breathing and and lighting that person up to new life. That is God's action. So, because and the reason I'm telling you this is because we bump into people that look really, really dead, don't we? They got the gang tattoos on, like the little teardrop ones. I've heard that's like how many people they kill. I seriously doubt that sometimes, man. But I see the little teardrop tattoos. That's someone who is just deeply entrenched in gang activity, right? I mean, they're like extra dead. But did it matter to Jesus whether someone had been dead for five minutes or 50 minutes or five hours or five years? No. Dead person's dead person. God specializes in dead people, and he especially gets glory from the really dead people. So be encouraged as an evangelist. You're not the one doing the work anyway. Do the best you can. Speak it in a way they understand it. That's what a good missionary does. We speak their language, and at the same time, when it is all said and done, remember, they're not alive. This is work that God does. i got to get back to it. Our remedy, folks, it's not sitting on a bedside table. Our remedy was a man, fully man and fully God. Jesus came as our remedy, and he lifts our stone-encrusted hearts that couldn't respond just caked with indifference. And he does a sort of heart surgery where he replaces it and puts in a, a heart that can feel, a heart that can respond in such a way that we love his statutes, that we chase after his commands, that we love his glory being seen, not just in us, but anywhere that his glory is seen, we rejoice. It's called regeneration. God does this. It's my favorite passage in the Bible, Ezekiel 11. Is that, do we have that? Good. Good. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. That they, may, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Do some of you struggle with loving His statutes and His commands? Do some of you struggle with seeing His glory lived out and being excited about that? Do you just hate the things that God talks about? Do you just hate the things that God puts out there? Do you, do you not get excited and really can't stand and maybe you just barely tolerate where His glory is shown? Friends, you've got a stone heart. I'm just going to say it. You're probably not a Christian, okay? You have a stone heart. We see right here the fruit that comes from a heart that has been lit alive, and it is one that does chase after the commands, one that does love God's statutes, one that lives for God's glory. I'm going to get back to that in a minute because we're just about done. It's a quick sermon today. I, I, I wanted to spend most of my time showing you and underlining in bold and highlighting God's solo effort to redeem you, that we as a people would become less fixated on our own effort to do it and more in love with God's effort as He did it for us. Because that makes a big difference. It should help us. The gospel's beauty ought to bring us to our knees in a place of humility, not pride. I mean, it has a radical effect on our lives. How we do devotion, how we do community, how we do mission. You see, Pharisees handle that a little bit differently than reformed tax collectors, it turns out. I mean, for a Pharisee, devotion we see a good example right here in this text, how a Pharisee handles devotion. They pray as a person that doesn't really need it. I've got to take it taken care of. I mean, if you want to jump in and help me, that's cool. I could use a little bit more blessing, but I've got this under control. And some of you right now are thinking, but Luke, I don't really pray like that. I, that, that doesn't really come out of my mouth. I know better than that. I agree with you. But how many of you has it come out of your mouth, Luke, I just want to pray more. I don't pray enough, or I want to pray more. We find actually an absence of prayer. And what that does is is in the absence of words that we are saying the same thing he said with very many self-glossing words. Because when we don't pray, and I'm with you, by the way, if that's you, and you have said, I just want to pray more, or my New Year's resolution is to be more in prayer, I'm with you, I'm in your club, I want to as well. But chase the reason behind the reason behind the reason. Keep t- Why is it that we don't pray? It's because we feel like we don't need the help. It's because we don't see him authoring our lives. It's because we feel like we've got it all under control. It might sound a little weird to have it said out loud, but isn't that not what it is? I mean, you've got this tax collector, right? This guy's not even going to make it to lunchtime unless God does something big. I mean, absent for God's glory, he's done. That's what I'm, that's what I'm hearing in his prayer. Community. Community from a Pharisee is pretty different too. He's not standing next to this tax collector. They're different from each other because the tax collector is far off and this guy's close to all the other Pharisees. But that's not community, by the way, that's affinity. He's with his own kind. Usually for a Pharisee, community becomes a comparison fest where we start to catalog people as either above us or below us. Uh, this is difficult. Living life on life with people that are different from us is difficult, isn't it? It's hard for me. It's very hard for me. I, I like certain things that make me feel comfortable. And when I'm put in close context with people that are not like me in very many ways, it's difficult. But, but isn't it in the difficulty that we see the gospel painted out loud? I mean, think about it. If, if you could put the person in this room right here, there's not even but a hundred or something of us in here, there's got to be someone in here that is your polar opposite. If we were to put you two together, you are not as different as you are from God. God is different from us, but yet He does life on life with us. He comes in and dwells us. He comes and lives with us. He breathes through His Holy Spirit into our lives. <laughs> we're very different from God. So when we do community well, it just pictures the gospel. It pictures the Gospel, Romans 5.8. It's not going to be on the screen, but it's something that you've all heard. It's when we were still sinners that Christ came for us and died for us when we were very far from Him. So is that person different from you that you do life with? Well, good. They should be. What well, good is a body of Christ where it's just a bunch of foots, feet, at a body, and all of the body parts look the same, would not be a well-functioning, healthy body. It's, it's okay. It's okay to have diversity in who you do life with, okay? Usually when we say as pastors, diversity, or when another pastor is asking me, how diverse are you as a church? Or someone uh, in the city says, are you guys a diverse church? Usually what they're thinking of is, what color skin do you have on Sunday morning? Do you have a lot of black skin, brown skin, white skin? Ethnically, are you diverse? That's what they're thinking. And there's a couple failures, failures in that. The first failure is, is this isn't even church. This is a church gathering. I'm not even impressed. If this was all white people, and this section was all black people, and that section is all I- everyone else, just a whole mixing pot, and we looked, and, and someone were to walk in and say, wow, this is very ethnically diverse, Not impressed. Are we doing it in the living rooms? Are we doing it on mission? That's impressive. That's where church is. That's ethnically diverse. The second failure in that is diversity just rests within ethnicity. All right, wh- what, about, what about the singles doing life with couples, doing life with big families, doing life with small families, doing life with those who have been in prison, doing life with those who make minimum wage, doing life with those that live on different sides of town? Reformed tax collectors doing life with Pharisees who are in construction. That is something that God is okay with. That is just as much diversity as ethnic diversity. I don't know why I went off on that. I think also Pharisees, they struggle with mission. And I know I do. Because one thing that's easy for a Pharisee to do is to put a burden on people's shoulders for them to get their own wagon wheels out of the mud before we have anything to do with touching them. We want our lost people sanitized. That's what we like it. If if there's people that are far from Christ, we get a little nervous and a little jittery if they cuss in front of us, right? Or if they tell a coarse joke or they break the law. We look at that and we think, oh my gosh, I feel nervous. Or maybe they don't accept your help the way you wanted them to accept your help. We want them a certain way. That's how we want them to come. We forget, we forget that so many of them are genetically designed to misbehave, and so were we. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2. We're genetically put together out of the womb to misbehave. But if you could see the city of Knoxville through the eyes of one who was a misbehavior, but one who behaved came and traded spots, it allows us to do mission a little bit better. It pulls us away from our Pharisaism. We forget so many times that they don't have the Holy Spirit. How else are they going to act? Of course they're going to cuss. Of course they're going to be a clown. Of course they're going to be weird. Of course they're going to have addictions. Of course they're going to say they show up and they don't. Of course they're going to be abusers and addicts. Of course they don't have the Holy Spirit. How many of us in this room are those things? Being on mission doesn't just mean seeing through the eyes of one who was once dead. It means being in the places where the dead are. It means ourselves being in the muck in the mire. Not doing the things, but being where they are at. It means a lot of things. I'm going to talk to a couple people, not like individuals, that would be awkward, but I'm going to talk to a couple groups of people, and then we're done. I'm talking to myself and many of you when I talk to those who are... Pharisees who were under construction. We know we're Pharisees. We don't like to be Pharisees, but we know it's running through our veins. Right? The bad news is is we are more self-righteous and more self-fascinated than we really originally imagined. But the good news is that the gospel is that much more beautiful than we could have ever hoped. That the gospel loves us in spite of how weird and crude and unchristlike we can act sometimes. That's the good news for us. But I do want to leave you with the question, how has it affected you, being a Pharisee, that is? How has it affected your devotion or your community? How has it affected your mission? I was praying about this early this morning, how it's affected me the most. I think it affects me in community the most. I don't think, I, 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 it doesn't grieve me so much to be around the, the, the city that's lost and dripping in their own depravity. It, it, for some reason, it just, it doesn't bother me. And I think I see God in my devotion a little bit more clearly. But when it gets to the church, that becomes a struggle. I want to know why people haven't caught up. Why have you not caught up? What's wrong with you? And look down and judge myself by them. It becomes very different to do life with people that are different. What is it for you? What is it for you? Listen, church, we cannot reach and impact the sick or the homeless or the oppressed or the afflicted or the impoverished or the marginalized or the unstable or the addicted or the overwhelmed. We can't do that. We, we, we can't engage those who are different without seeing ourselves as Jesus is teaching us in this parable. We can't do it. You know, part of this parable that I can't preach today, it's its own sermon. You noticed only one of these men left as a Christian. It's, that's the jig and the jag in the parable. It's not the one we would have thought, Right? The black hat walks out. Turns out there are no black hats and there are no white hats. Jesus has the white hat. Everyone has the black hat. But because of what Jesus has done, the tax collector walks out a free man. But not the other guy. Even though from the outside, it looked like he would be the guy that walked out with salvation, just dripping from his robes. It was not. It was not. It's a different sermon. But if you can't see people correctly, and you can't see God correctly, and you can't see community correctly or the city correctly, Frank, can you see the gospel correctly? Because the gospel gives us 20-20 vision on those things, or at least helps us see God for who He is, and each other for who we are, and what community for what it is, and the city for what it is. And if we can't see any of that, then I I would have to submit you haven't even seen the gospel yet. Could you be the one walking out that has not been justified? And then the last group I want to talk to is this. Some of you that are the Reformed tax collectors. The one who is having a hard time lifting his eyes. This passage says they felt so dirty and so polluted they could not even lift their eyes. Have you ever been there and felt that way? I have. Now God did something very beautiful in in this man's life, in this parable. It would be misplaced if he showed up the very next week and still could not lift his eyes. Why? Because he's been justified. And God sees him differently. And now he has every right with confidence he can lift his eyes. Even with his bad acts behind him. Even with his sins even that day. God sees him and sees you, friend, forensically, judiciously, as righteous. Without sin. As he sees his Son. I should bring a a sense of worship and presence to you. If you have a hard time raising your eyes still to this day, You're struggling a little bit with how you see the gospel. You're struggling to really believe that it's as good as it says it is. The story is a good story. And I think you might be struggling with that. So, listen, we're done with this, and we're going to do something a little different today. Um, (laughs) And listen, try to hold in the gasps, all right, until after we're done. But I would love for you, and we only do this a few times a year, to break up into small groups. Okay? You're gasping with your eyes. It's okay, because I'll be looking at my watch, and we won't do it for a very long time, but I want you guys to talk about where, where it is that you struggle at being a Pharisee. Is it in how you see God, how you see the church community, or how you see the city? Where is the struggle for you? I, I mean, I gave you my struggle. I, I think it's with community. It's something that I have to be watchful of. It. What is it? What is it? And then it would be great for you guys to pray for each other that you would see the gospel more clearly there's power in this now listen if you're a guest today and you're like oh my gosh we're getting in groups and i don't even know anyone listen you can just say pass when it comes to you all right pass or i'm a guest or something like that (laughs) you don't have to say a word if you don't want to and we're only going to do this for a few minutes okay and then we're going to go on worship's going to come and we're going to finish the service how does that sound good all right so let's go ahead i'm going to pray and then we're going to break up into groups guys look so nervous calm down it's not that bad. Father, I thank You so much for Your goodness to us. I thank You so much, Lord, that You came down into my mire. My wagon wheel was covered with mud. You couldn't even see it. I've tried so many times to get that wagon out of the mud that I've made it as bad as it was, but You came in, Lord, and You did what I never could. Lord, that You crawled up on the cross and You died and You, you took a wrath and you took a judgment on your shoulders that was supposed to fall on mine. And you gave a righteousness to me that was supposed to be yours. And you took an unrighteousness from me that was supposed to be mine. And you grafted me into a family that I, I didn't belong in. And you became a father to me and a king to me that I didn't even ask for. But you changed my heart You broke the stone off. And You put in a heart of beating flesh, Lord, that it would love You, that would desire You. And God, I, I couldn't have done that. I didn't even want it when You came to me, but Lord, You set my heart on fire, and I could not help but just to say yes, Lord. Yes to Your glory. Lord, that it would help me, that it would help me see this church more accurately the city more accurately, community and mission, that it helped me see my devotion to you more accurately. That I would not stop coming to you as this tax collector where I need help. Lord, I I need you. I need your grace and your mercy. I I need you to open the doors. I need you to shut the doors. I need you to fix my heart. I need you to put down the desires of my flesh. I need you to give me new desires. I need you to do it, Lord. That I would not ever leave that. Lord, that we would not be a church of Pharisees where we just spend our time and take turns thanking you of how awesome we are and how we've arrived, that we would not be a church that sneers down our nose at a city that cannot seem to catch up. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name that we celebrate, it's in your name that we get together in groups. Amen. All right.